So Jack, you are a religion reporter. That's a very busy job right now. Yeah, I'd say there's there's not a dearth of things to cover right about now. Um, beginning in 2016 and leading right up to the present moment, there has always been a lot to cover um, in this space. Uh, but it's, a, it's an interesting space at this point, mostly because um, there's a lot of tension. You know, you, you've always had faith stories, but right now, uh, the overlap of religion and politics, which is most of my beat, is just covering politics at this point. And so tell me why that is. Let's look at white evangelicals in particular. Loads of them voted for Trump and continue to support him. Why do you think that is? Um, There's a myriad of reasons for that, and people have a number of theories across the board. Um, There, you know, people say anything from, you know, they're just traditional Republicans, so of course they supported a Republican candidate, um, to more granular analysis that um, measures from the fact that there's a, among white evangelicals, they would have preferred to have a candidate that maybe reflected their interpersonal values, but what they really cared about was whether or not the candidate, um, whoever they were, was going to put a conservative member on the Supreme Court and protect religious liberty as they define it. Um, And Donald Trump promised to do both of those things throughout his tenure um, as a candidate. Now, in addition to that, I think a lot of folks argue, and I've argued in the past, that there's an element of what's called Christian nationalism in Trump's rhetoric and the way he um, talks about America and faith that resonated a lot with this demographic. Let's look at that Christian nationalism narrative then, because I think from our side of the Atlantic, Trump's language seems to be really belligerent, brutal, harsh a lot of the time. But you've done some work to look at some of the more sophisticated ways that he has framed messages to the evangelical audience. Right. I mean, we have to acknowledge something up front, which is that it's not that Donald Trump is particularly gifted at talking about religion, per se. You know, there was um, when he spoke to Liberty University, the largest Christian university in the country, you know, he famously flubbed being able to cite scripture. Um, And he, you know, he wasn't, he said two Corinthians for a a section of the Bible that's traditionally called second Corinthians. Um, And so it isn't necessarily his strong suit when talking about theology. But what he is good about is creating, I'm talking about overlaps between patriotism and faith. And, you know, it speaks more to an identity as opposed to a theology. So when he says that, you know, we are, uh, God is going to protect America. He said that during his inaugural address. Um, he's, he's saying something to these people who also kind of understand their faith and their patriotism as one in the same. And uh, he did that throughout his tenure as a candidate um, when he would, one, speaking at Liberty University at all, which was something that, you know, um, Republicans often do. But two, you know, saying that he sees something in this demographic um, where, you know, when they talk about God, you know, he gets it. Um, you know, when he says things like, we worship God, not government, you know, he, that's, that's, that's something that resonates with a group that thinks that an American flag and a cross are both equally American symbols. So basically, we're looking at a kind of version of American exceptionalism for people who feel as though they're in love with God and God loves them. A bit like that. I mean, I should note that, you know, American religious um, nationalism is a really broad topic, and it's arguably something that Americans do across the um, political spectrum. You know, the idea that, that a candidate might invoke their faith 
while on um, while on the stump during a campaign. That's something that both Republicans and Democrats do. But the kind of Christian nationalism that Trump um, appeals to really didn't develop until the last couple of decades. Um, you know, beginning with the religious right, but also underneath um, President George W. Bush's tenure, a form of really concentrated, distilled Christian nationalism that you know, believes that America is quote unquote a Christian nation, as it were. And so it is, in any ways, a, a form of uh, American exceptionalism. But what is exceptional about America in this ideology is that it is inherently Christian. Now, obviously, historians have disputed that for quite some time, but for this demographic, it's a powerful form of identity and a powerful way to define themselves as an American. So do you have some examples that you can give us of specifics that Trump has said that, that bring those two things together? Sure. I mean, the, the most famous one, as I mentioned earlier, is when Trump spoke um, before uh, evangelicals. He actually has used this line several times when he says, um, we worship God, not government. Right. Like that is that is a not subtle appeal to both one, a conservative value um, that, you know, government is bad, quote unquote, big government is bad. But also the idea that that, you know, to be an American is to worship God, um, to be inherently religious. And in that context, when he's talking to evangelical Christians, it means to worship the evangelical idea of a, a Christian God. Um, but the other one is, is often how uh, not necessarily things that Trump says, but the things that happen around Trump. So last year, around the 4th of July, um, he participated in this event where one of his most ardent supporters, Pastor Robert Jeffress, um, who is a Southern Baptist minister in Texas, um, he got his home choir from his home church to sing a song, to sing what sounded very much like a hymn um, called Make America Great Again, which is, of course, Donald Trump's uh, campaign slogan. And they sang it, you know, for him. And so, you know, these sorts of things where they conflate both him as a candidate and as the president and the American identity with this religious fervor um, happen over and over and over again uh, throughout Trump's rise to power. So what you're saying sounds kind of territorial, as though people want to really grab onto what they believe is the heritage of this country. They don't want to make room for different ways of thinking or believing. Is this a kind of... Um, group of people that have been disenfranchised or felt forgotten by politics? I think they certainly feel forgotten by politics. I think that's a running trend. Um, one thing I think is interesting about Christian nationalism, there were some sociologists here in the United States who've done some um, surveys and studies on this, and th this topic and on this identity. And what they found is if you claim to be um, a Christian nationalist. Usually people don't define themselves as that. What they'll say is they believe America is a Christian nation and answer a few other questions similar to that. If you believe that, um, there is there seems to be a correlation with that identity and, say, anti-immigrant sentiment, anti-refugee sentiment, Islamophobia. Um, you know, these sorts of things that were also tied up in Trump's campaign often kind of overlap. And what you see in that is a kind of, you know, uh, uh, circling the wagons, as it were, as a group of people believing that they need to protect what's theirs. Um, and, and that often means at the expulsion of everyone else who is not them. Um, in some instances, quite literally expelling immigrants um, or keeping Muslims in particular from entering the country. Um, so, you know, in some ways, Trump spoke to this group of people that, as many different um, journalists have noted, feel like they're marginalized, regardless of whether or not they are, um, both in his rhetoric and in his policy proposals. You know, the idea of a Muslim ban, quote unquote, um, or a travel ban 
is is it resonates with this group because for them, if you are say you know you identify as a very specific kind of Christian and you've been told that Islam is a threat to your identity, then you believe Trump when he says he's protecting you by banning these people from coming into the country, regardless of any other narrative that these are refugees and that they need help. For these folks, they feel that they haven't been represented and. When they are not represented, they actually lose um, power and influence and the country that they believe has existed for centuries. That's a, a very interesting interpretation of evangelical theology in terms of protecting um, an identity. Uh, I think uh, what we tend to see in the UK and Europe perhaps is uh, increasingly an interpretation of scripture. I'm thinking of Matthew chapter 25, do in as much as you did it to one of these, the stranger, the prisoner, the homeless person, uh, you did it to me, comparing uh, an encounter with Jesus. Um, so wh- where is that? It, it is that in the narrative in the evangelical church in the States at all, that sort of compassion and reaching out beyond ourselves to people who are nothing like us? Can we try a question yeah, one more time? Just tighten it up. Yeah. Okay, yeah. I get what you're saying. Yeah, 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 so I'm just going to, yeah. Okay. So you're talking about protecting an identity and a religious subculture, which feels quite different to the challenge in Scripture in Matthew 25, where Jesus talks to his followers about when you um, help somebody who's in trouble, a stranger, a prisoner, a homeless person, you are helping me. Is that narrative present here in the evangelical church in the U.S. at all? Um, so I'll caveat this by noting that um, Christian nationalism often is a, more of an identity than it is a theology, if that makes any sense. Um, you know, you often you can claim that lots of religious theologies aren't consistent, but on this one, you know, people will often defer to the identity without discussing the theology. That having been said. Um, when uh, Trump announced his ban on people from majority Muslim countries entering the, the United States, there was overwhelming religious condemnation of that, saying that it was bad, including from evangelical circles. What's interesting is that it didn't resonate with these average evangelical um, individuals. I mean, white evangelical Protestants in the United States still, you know, overwhelmingly support the ban in several um, recent polls. Now, what you have heard in terms of a theological counter-argument is people like Robert Jeffress or Jerry Falwell, president of Liberty University, argue that um, when they hear the scripture, render unto Caesar what is Caesar's, right? They read that scripture as effectively saying, at least in this context, let the president do what he needs to do. Um, it's not that the, the call by Christ to welcome the, um, the stranger and, you know, what you do unto the least of these you do to me is an individual claim. And they make the separation between an individual claim and what we would be required to do as a government. Now, to be clear, that doesn't seem to be a consistent theology. They would say different things that seem to directly contradict that about Barack Obama when he was president of the United States. Um, And, you know, Robert Jeffords, for instance, said that Barack Obama was paving the way for the Antichrist with his policy proposals. And then, you know, several years later saying that you, you can't necessarily criticize Trump in certain ways because that violates this render unto Caesar's what is Caesar's. But the overarching argument, or at least the, the, the way that it's articulated by these, this crew of evangelical leaders that defend Trump, is that they say, no, uh, that those claims are just things you need to do by yourself. The government doesn't have the same call to welcome others um, by Christ as individuals do. So is Trump being held to a different standard by evangelicals, both at congregation level and leaders, than other presidents have been? 
I certainly think that the religious left thinks he, he is. Um, I think pe- members of the, uh, the religious left, um, this group that, that is deeply progressive and also claims uh, many faiths, not just Christianity, would argue that, yes, evangelicals are using a different standard. And they would point to, um, there's been some polling recently, uh, particularly one poll during the 2016 election, where um, the Public Religion Research Institute um, had conducted a poll years before saying, you know, does your politician, if you're, you know, as a person, does your politician have to um, remain moral? You know, are you okay voting for them if they are immoral in their personal life? And evangelicals, only a very small percent of white evangelical Protestants were willing to support a candidate that was immoral in their personal life. Um, that number completely reversed in 2016. We're talking from the 30s into the 70s of that same demographic when Donald Trump was running for president. Um, Now, we only have two data points there, but what you see and what a lot of religious left people would argue, and even many evangelicals, because there are evangelicals who were fervently critical of Trump and remain so, is that their their demographic is holding Trump to a different standard, um, and that they're letting him get away with things that they decried when Bill Clinton did them, for instance. Um, you know, Ralph Reed, in one instance, you know, back in the 2000s, criticized Bill Clinton for things that sounds like a whole lot like things that he's willing to let Donald Trump get away with. At least that's the criticism of the left. Can we get that one more time? That's really yes, the, the Ralph Reed part. Yeah. Yeah. Um, the, and you, you, know, you might you, you want to check this one, too. It's a, uh, um, leaders like Ralph Reed during the, the 1990s criticized um, Bill Clinton, saying that character counts, the character of a leader counts, for things that sound a whole lot like what Donald Trump is being accused of doing, that they're basically letting him get a pass. At least that's the argument of the left at this point. There's been an emerging narrative about uh, scripture parallels with an evil king who comes through for God's people. Is that something that people are saying about Trump? Yeah, there's um, the the Cyrus narrative. Um, there, there's a there's a lot of talk in evangelical circles that um, God can use imperfect vessels. That God chooses kings throughout, the, particularly the Old Testament, um, for who are not particularly moral in their personal life for good deeds. Um, and you do hear that quite a bit, particularly at, at, at lower levels, not necessarily from leadership, but at lower levels among evangelicals. Um, and that's persisted for a while. Uh, what's interesting, again, is you know whether or not that's a narrative they would hold to consistently if Barack Obama were still president, for instance. Um, you know, would you are you willing to let someone be you know, immoral if if you know if if he upheld your ideals as a Democrat? And that really gets to the core question here: is what do evangelicals actually want out of a president? Is it you know just a pro-life um, justice on the Supreme Court? Is it you know just talking about their particular vision of God from the pulpit? And I think that's the question that everyone's wrestling with right now around Donald Trump is, is there anything that Donald Trump could do that could make this certain subset of American Christians break? So they give him a free pass on his many relationships, on his uh, basically rudeness towards lots of people, on his um, uh, disparaging language about minorities because of the Supreme Court issue primarily. Is that what you're saying? I, th- I think that that is what people are pointing to as the reason for sticking around. Um, I think what you what you hear is 
latent within the idea that God uses imperfect vessels is, well, what, are you, what is God using Trump for? And the thing that all these evangelicals lift up as the reason that they keep supporting Trump is that they got a conservative Supreme Court justice in Neil Gorsuch, and that Trump is continuing to support what they call religious liberty. Um, now, interestingly, Trump actually hasn't done that much on that topic, but they keep saying as long as he continues to support those two different parts of their agenda, um, and as long as he still says that he's a pro-life candidate, quote-unquote, um, and a pro-life president, that they seem to continue to support him. The interesting question is, if he moved on any of those issues, would they abandon him? Because he personally wasn't always pro-life anyway, was he? Nope. He, had, he has changed his position on that. Um, and, you know, again, one of the things, although this is the same reason thing that you'll hear, let me rephrase that. Um, yeah, I, I will say that one of the things that evangelicals often list, though, is if you find an inconsistency in Trump before he was elected and what he used to get elected, so a flip on policy, a flip on personal behavior, you'll often hear people like Franklin Graham or Jerry Falwell or Ralph Reed, perhaps, that Trump is a changed man, that he is different, that and they allow for forgiveness, that we can forgive someone if they've come back around. And traditionally, that means actually apologizing for what you've done or taking ownership for it. But in this instance, it seems to mean um, if Trump was willing to support the policies we support. How do you see millennials responding to Trump? Um, I mean, in general, uh, they're not huge fans. Um, millennials as a collective group. Um, millennial evangelicals are you know, more supportive of Trump than you will find among other groups. Um, it, it, just as a general rule, evangelicals across the board aren't super supportive of um, the president of the United States for a variety of reasons. I um, mean, one, that group is disproportionately supportive of, um, uh, say, LGBTQ rights. And the Republican Party platform is often posited to be act actively antagonistic towards the, um, the campaigns of uh, uh, equality groups who are pushing for LGBTQ rights. And so it's, it's, it's hard for them to kind of reconcile Trump in that regard. Um, although I will note there's, this a weird, there's a weird outlier to all of the conversations around conservative religious people in the United States in support to, for Trump. And that is Mormons who are also disproportionately, they, they still support the Republican candidate, they still, the state of Utah still went Republican in 2016, but despite the fact that this group is explicitly Christian nationalist insofar as that they believe that the Constitution is a divinely inspired document, um, they were nowhere near as supportive of the Republican candidate as they have been in years past. And that group is interestingly, they also came out against the, the Muslim ban, at least that's the wide perception, because the, the LDS Church, the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, the Mormon Church, issued a statement after Trump you know, first proposed the Muslim ban during the campaign, saying you know, that we, uh, as, as a people, as the Mormon people, you know, we celebrate diversity. And so you do have a weird, interesting uh, breaking point at some level among the traditional alliance of the religious right, which has been conservative evangelicals and the newcomers, conservative Catholics and conservative Mormons. So that group kind of, you know, not just millennials, um, but also among Mormons, you've seen a lot of dissent around Trump. Mormons, of course, are less of a minority in the States as they are in some other countries, but they are a minority. So um, I wonder if perhaps the evangelical protectionism is about maintaining a status quo. So therefore, a minority would understand some of the dilemmas about immigration in a way that the status quo would not. 
that seems to be the case. Um, that, that's certainly the perception because you know Mormons were actually there was an attempt to actually bar, uh, bar Mormons from entering the country at one point. That was an actual thing that was proposed. Um, and you know I don't think it's a coincidence that some of Donald Trump's loudest opponents, like Senator Jeff Flake and what could soon be Senator Mitt Romney, are both Mormon. Um, you see that there is a lot of uh, while they line up behind the Republican Party platform in general. They're nowhere near as supportive of Trump in particular because they understand what it's like to be a minority religious group in the United States, and parts of their history involved actively fighting the, the federal government. So that, that does seem to be a part of their lineage. It's interesting that um, evangelicals seem to be excusing Trump's lack of moral behavior or allegiance with the sort of notion of um, uh, penitence, repentance, if you like, while at the same time being very, quite excited about some of Trump's appointments who are evangelicals themselves, although without perhaps the track record of, of professional delivery that would otherwise put them in some of those positions. Um, I'm thinking of perhaps the Education Secretary, EPA, those people who were surprise appointments, but that was appealing to the evangelical base, was it? I think that's it's widely perceived to be. I, I, it was, you know, the fact that Betsy DeVos um, it has. Uh, you just say who she is. Betsy DeVos, the education secretary, um, is uh, such a large part and um, of of Trump's early cabinet uh, um, controversy. Is you know it didn't surprise very many people. Um, it surprised people in the education field, but it didn't surprise as many people who watch politics because you know Trump. You know, catering to um, uh, conservative Christians is nothing new. I mean, one thing that often goes undiscussed is uh, Trump hasn't filled the actual f official White House um, religion office. That hasn't been filled. And the religion office at the State Department has been effectively disbanded under him. What has happened is that Trump and apparently every single member of his cabinet have an unofficial list of religious advisors, and by religious advisors, they are overwhelmingly, if not entirely, evangelical Christians who are advising Trump on foreign policy and domestic policy. Um, so that catering to that group, I mean, if, if, in terms of just how many people he hears on a regular basis, they're overwhelmingly evangelical Christian, or at least informed by that demographic. So uh, yes, his cabinet appointments, as well as some of his speeches, as well as some of his um, executive orders, seem to very much cater toward that part of his base. We should get that again, because that's really interesting. Mm -hmm. I, get that from no, that's good, I didn't yeah. know that. Yeah. Well, the, yeah. the advisors? Yeah, I did. Yeah, so yeah. I, so and that really underlines a lot of what we're doing. So, yep. um, Perhaps we could try that in a slightly formulation of the question mm -hmm. that, that gets yeah. that. I'll, I'll just, I mean, I'll just crystallise it down to say how, how important are the um, appointments, the cabinet appointments in appealing to the... Yeah, yeah okay. Trump's made some surprise appointments to cabinet um, reflecting his evangelical base. Was that a specific outreach to them? I think it's it's widely perceived to be at least to some extent. Uh, Betsy DeVos, the education secretary, is often um, you know considered a part of this conservative Christian demographic. Um, ben Carson, obviously, you know, housing and urban development, um, is also considered kind of a part of that cadre. But while that may have, may have surprised, their appointments may have surprised people in the education field and the housing and urban development field, it didn't surprise a lot of observers of politics because Trump has consistently appealed to these conservative Christians um, throughout his campaign and his tenure as president. 
And you, only, you don't have to look far to see further evidence of that. You know, there is an official White House religion position that Trump has not filled that was filled, you know, that was created under George W. Bush. He also has basically largely disbanded the religion office at the State Department. Um, and in their stead, Trump has created an unofficial band of religious advisors, and apparently every member of his cabinet also has some form of this, um, according to what his ad- religious advisors have told me. And when I say religious advisors, I mean overwhelmingly, if not entirely, evangelical Christian advisors. So, you know, the, the group of people that Trump hears from on a regular basis that, that are in the White House for meetings are either largely evangelical Christian or largely informed by that group. So, you know, Trump, at the end of the day, isn't just appealing to this group. They're appealing back to him. How does the rest of the church in the U.S. feel about that white evangelical base, do you think? There is a lot of controversy and a lot of frustration. Uh, I've been to religious left events recently this past year. For instance, I went when Reverend Al Sharpton um, convened a thousand or more faith leaders in Washington, D.C. to kind of march against racism, and it became in many ways, an anti-Trump march as well, where people speaking from the mic specifically apologized on behalf of evangelical Christians, you know, saying, saying that they have, you know, uh, in many ways misused the Bible and misused scripture and misused Christian theology, according to them. Um, you have many critics like Reverend William Barber, um, who has is, is been, uh, been associated with the religious left for quite some time now, who've gone on television and called a lot of these sorts of uh, lead, Christian leaders and leaders that Trump appealed to, um, if not heretics, then, then approaching heresy. Um, he's, used, he's used that term before. And then even with the evangelicalism, I mean, people often forget Russell Moore, who's head of the uh, political arm of the Southern Baptist Convention, which is the largest denomination in the United States after Catholicism, they, um, for, throughout Trump's campaign, he vehemently critiqued Trump. He, went, he wrote op-eds in the Washington Post and the New York Times decrying him and saying that he's a danger to evangelicals and, and to the country even. Um, and, and now he's gone largely quiet since Trump has been elected, but that argument within evangelicalism has not subsided. And I actually think you, you've started to see critiques of Jerry Falwell from his own students at Liberty University. You've started to see you know, potential protests there. Um, you know, from from people who are on campus, a, a, a anti-Trump pastor or anti-Trump evangelical speaker was actually removed, physically removed from campus when he went and visited Liberty University recently. So you're starting to see some real frustration and anger directed at these faith leaders who support Trump. Um, I don't know if they care at all. Um, I don't know if it, it, it seems to affect their narrative in one way or another. But I do think I have seen, as a religion reporter, um, a, a growing sense of frustration and unrest and anger often directed at these leaders. Charlottesville seems to have been a turning point. I'm thinking it was A.R. Bernard who stepped away from advising um, Trump as a result of that. Um, which brings us round to this um, base being the white evangelical church, specifically not the black evangelicals. How much of a difference is there there? Um, I mean, you know, theologically, the the, uh, historically black churches and historically black denominations and white evangelical churches actually don't, I mean, have a lot in common. There's, 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 there's definitely points of overlap among the leadership. Um, But when it comes to, you know, party 
affiliation. I mean, churches don't affiliate with parties, but in terms of how their their membership votes, there's a wide gap. Um, white evangelicals vote overwhelmingly Republican. Um, black churches in the United States vote historically overwhelmingly Democratic. In fact, um, the recent election in Alabama um, between Roy Moore, who, by the way, is an explicit Christian nationalist, and he was the Republican candidate, um, lost to Doug Jones, who is a Democrat, and they have people have largely credited that to the black vote and, and, and black churches showing up in a big way during that election, among other things in that complicated race. Um, there is a wide gap there. But I think that frustration uh, among the black church with white evangelicals is growing. And it comes at a really interesting time because groups like the Southern Baptist Convention and other evangelical groups as well were actually just starting to do a lot of racial reconciliation work right around the time that Trump rose to power. And um, I would defer to those leaders, but it seems like it kind of pumped the brakes on a lot of their efforts. And uh, that frustration, um, the frustration surrounding Trump, particularly after Charlottesville, has not subsided. In fact, one thing to remember, after Charlottesville, um, according to ABC, they couldn't get a White House representative after Trump made controversial comments, you know, equating protesters and protesters, white nationalists and those protesting white nationalists as, you know, equally at fault for what occurred there. Um, and so apparently, according to ABC, the White House openly said, why don't you call Jerry Falwell? And he was put forth as the surrogate for the White House to defend Trump's moral credibility in that context. Um, and so that gives you a glimpse into how deeply entrenched these groups are with the messaging of the White House, uh, whether explicit or implicit. I leave that up to y'all. But as you say, it's not every single white evangelical in the States who is pro-Trump. We've spoken to David French, who's a journalist and a writer, um, who has been very clear about his concern about Trump. Within the church, we've seen Tim Keller recently um, come out and, and, and write about evangelicalism and his concerns there. Do you think we're reaching a tipping point now where if a white evangelical leader doesn't show concern about Trump, they're assumed to condone and endorse him? I think, I think that's a really interesting question because it kind of parallels some other tipping points in white evangelicalism in the United States. For instance, you know, there's often very similar discussions about LG, you know, same-sex marriage, and if, if a pastor doesn't say anything about whether they stand on same-sex marriage, they are assumed to oppose it. Um, similar with Trump. I will say that there seems to be more uh, overt anger around this issue, and, and, and people are, are asking more frequently how their pastors and their religious leaders stand on this. And there is an open question about the, the slate of white evangelical leaders that tend to defend Trump. Um, they're not all white, and they're, um, but like the, the slate of evangelical leaders that tend to um, defend Trump, how many people they, they actually can sway, if that makes any sense. Or you know, if, if, if they switch the position on Trump, would anybody follow them, or vice versa? Um, and so I do think we're encountering a moment of crisis for white evangelicalism um, in terms of how, of how it exp expresses itself politically. And I think you're hearing that from the Russell Moores and the David Frenches um, of this country about, you know, where do they find a home now to the point where some people, you know, it's, a lot of pieces have been written where some evangelicals don't want to use the term evangelical anymore. And how does the rest of the country see the relationship between church and politics now? I'm thinking of people who are not particularly religious or if they are, they're not Christians. Well, it's a good question because uh, one of the weird things about the 2016 election is that arguably the Democratic National Convention was more overtly religious 
than the Republican National Convention. It just didn't look like white evangelical Christianity. Um, but you had, you know, Kaiser Khan, who is this uh, father of a gold star um, veteran, you know, defending, speaking about his, his Muslim faith and, you know, speaking about how much he respected the Constitution. Um, and then you also had Reverend William Barber speaking before that same assembly. Um, and so you actually had a lot of deeply religious rhetoric coming out of um, progressive spaces. Uh, in fact, one of the, you know, the, the candidates for, um, let me back up. In fact, you know, one really prominent progressive lawmaker, Cory Booker, um, you know, the first thing he said to critique Donald Trump's State of the Union address was that he used faith to divide. So you're starting to see in some ways in the vacuum of, uh, you know, what some would describe as moral credibility left by the, the religious right, religious left and, conser- uh, and progressive leaders are, are trying to take that back a little bit. That having been said, also the religious the, the percentage of people who do not claim one or religious affiliation in the United States is growing um, by leaps and bounds every day. They are disproportionately represented by you know by, in the in the Democratic Party, and so um, and one of the things that demographic when you they are polled says is they are often bristle when uh, lawmakers talk about faith on the stump. So I think we're having two competing narratives um, where or even three, where one group decries the fact the religious right um, is supporting Trump. Another group says that perhaps the left should reclaim the language of faith in um, American politics. And a third that says that maybe we shouldn't talk about faith in politics at all. Looking ahead, how do you think the church in America will be different as a result of the Trump presidency? <laughs> well, it would be, it'll be really interesting to see how religious leaders interact if, say, a Democrat gets elected in 2020 or even 2024. Um, because I think the role that faith leaders have played in the Trump presidency, you know, the fact that you know, some uh, have, have very, very wide access to the president to the point where their allies, um, Paula White, for instance, who is a, a quote-unquote prosperity gospel preacher from Florida and who's touted as Trump, one of Trump's closest spiritual advisors, you know, she had another evangelical leader say that she can just walk into the White House whenever she wants. Um, whether or not that's true is another question, but the point there is that they have deep access and, and, and very close access to the president on issues of policy. I would guess that because of how often these faith leaders have been, you know, the moral um, defenders of Trump and how controversial Trump has been, that it would you would be less likely to see that same sort of close association were a Democrat elected office. Um, but we'll have to see because the truth is there's a lot of confusion and there's a lot of um, <laughs> lack of, of, of clarity about where politics goes at all right now. So the truth is, uh, one thing that's happened since 2016 is a lot of us don't like to make predictions. <laughs> um, and so, uh, so you always have to read it in that context.